The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. If not, Exodus is the second book in your Bible. Genesis is the first book, and then Exodus there, and we're in the second book in the second chapter of the second volume in uh, the Pentateuch. So lots of seconds today, but that's where we find ourselves today. Exodus 1, as we got into uh, the story, what we saw last week is that the Israelites were under uh, the bitter bondage of the Egyptians. Whereas Genesis ended on a high note as God's people were uh, not in the promised land, but in the land of Egypt, more specifically in Goshen, it ends well and God blessing them. Exodus opens with a, a tragic different story, right? The story of their oppression as the Israelites are enslaved and chapter one ends really with great atrocity. The legalization of the murder of firstborn sons. And you end chapter one and it seems like the people of God are stuck. That they are seemingly alone suffering and with nobody to help, no allies, no advocates, no one to speak or legislate or mediate on their behalf. They need an exodus, that's for sure. They need a way out. They need to be delivered from the bondage and they need the presence of a king or a savior to rescue them. And it seems as if they are alone. But are they? For as we find or will find here in chapter 2, somebody sees, somebody hears, somebody remembers, somebody knows their plight. Would you look with me in Exodus 2? Let's read it together. I'm just going to read the whole chapter for us and then we will uh, dig into it as we go here. Look at your Bible now. Exodus 2 verse 1 says this. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold... The baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, well, who made you a prince and a judge over us? 
Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is God's word for God's people. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? It's a fascinating story. In church, we ask the question, who knows? Who knows? Who hears? Who remembers? Who sees the Israel's, the Israelites' situation? God does. It's an easy answer this morning. It's to be the easiest answer you have to give this morning. God sees. God hears. God knows what is going on in their situation. And that's why we can say, underlying this passage, uh, the main point here, the thing to take away is this, that God knows we need an exodus. If we began last week saying that everybody needs an exodus, well, here, God knows this reality as well. And this is a game changer for the Israelites. It's a game changer for us today. It's one thing to be stuck and stuck alone. And it's quite another thing to be stuck and to have God on your side. God knew how helpless the Israelites were. He knew their situation. He could see the bondage that they were under and he did something about it. He wasn't just aloof. He wasn't inactive. He wasn't unaware, but God knew they needed an exodus. And so here's the first point. He providentially moves events for their deliverance. If you're taking notes, then here's the first point. God providentially moves events for deliverance. You know, in verse 1 here, as we kind of uh, take this apart here, verse 1 begins obscurely, just with a man and a woman, and it just talks about the, their lineage. We don't know their names yet, although he will uh, reveal the names to us in chapter 6. You can go and turn there if you want and see if you can figure it out or do it later, but they're unnamed at this point. All we know is their family lineage. Where are they from? The house of? Levi, that's right, that's a little harder one. God was an easy one, but here, you know, God's usually a safe answer, but here, the house of Levi. And you know, if we were reading our Bible, if we didn't know anything about the story of Scripture, and we had just started in Genesis 1, and we were reading through it, when we would get to Exodus 2 here, uh, the, 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 to be from the line of Levi is actually not very great. 
It's, it's, it's not a good thing because if you were to flip back a couple chapters into Genesis 49, when Jacob, the father of his 12 sons, when he gets to Simeon and Levi, he actually uh, does not give them a blessing. He leaves them out of the inheritance for their sin that they committed way back in Genesis 34. In Genesis 34, you will read about how these two brothers, Simeon and Levi, in, 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 a, you know, in an initially righteous attempt to, uh, to uh, honor their sister Dinah, who was uh, taken advantage of, they, in an uh, act of extreme violence, used the sign of God's covenant, the act of circumcision, to maim a whole people group and then come in and violently murder and plunder them. And because of this, because they trample upon uh, God's good covenant, They are disqualified from the Messianic lineage and ultimately from inheriting land in the promised land. Much like uh, uh, the firstborn son Reuben is also left out for his sins of adultery. And then the next two, the second and thirdborn, Simeon and Levi, are likewise left out of the blessing. And the the Messiah would come then through the fourthborn son or Judah. What do we know of Christ? He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Judah. And so we come to a story like this, and this doesn't actually start off great. We don't know their names, and the family in which they come from doesn't bode well. But in the way that we who know the, the what comes next, in a way that only God can do in working out his redemptive story, these people who have a not-so-great past would then be greatly used of the Lord as his priestly line. See, it doesn't matter for us necessarily what we, where we come from. The sins of our fathers and forefathers before them. What matters is the redemptive work that God is doing in our life today and what he has for us in the future. Let not those things of our past hold us back. And so despite this family history, God would redeem and he would set them up. And so this unnamed man and woman, they start a family. And we begin with this, uh, they have a son. And what does it say in verse 2? It says that he was a fine child, right? Every parent in here that has had a kid, you think your child is fine, right? Who, who among us have had a, has have a, had a kid and you're kind of like, well, I guess that's our offspring, No, come on, none of us are like that, right? Everybody thinks that we have a fine child and thus is the case for this happy parent and they hide him for three months for what has been the edict that was just released, the murder of all sons cast into the river. And so they hide him for three months. And after these three months, then the the mom in obedience actually does what the law requires. She puts him in this basket quite literally an ark, the same word here used for Noah's ark, the vessel that would preserve uh, people through God's worldwide judgment upon the earth for the wickedness of the, of the people. Here also God would preserve the man that he would have to lead his people out of destruction, out of their oppression. And so in obedience to the command, she casts her son in the Nile. And then a series of you know, seemingly coincidental or even ironic events begin to take place. We just read it. That's familiar to you. you, know, you know, Pharaoh's daughter just happens to be bathing there at that, uh, you know, at that place in the, uh, in the river. And her, she opens the basket. And of course, she sees this fine child, this baby who is crying. And in her heart, she, what does it say? It, she took pity. 
She took pity on him where uh, many of the Egyptians of that day did. <laughs> Let's just say they did not take pity. They hardened their hearts. They hardened their hearts to the violence and the atrocity that was happening to these sons. This, this daughter of Pharaoh, it is her brother likely whose heart would be hardened over and over and over as Moses would come and plead for the release of his people. But in another coincidental event, the sister is following along, and so she sees that they have found her brother, and so she makes a suggestion. Well, why don't you go find a Hebrew woman to nurse your child, this newfound child of yours that you're a found, and that's agreeable to Pharaoh. And so she goes and finds, and who becomes the, the nurse of this child? Coincidentally, is it the child's mother? And not only that, but what does it say? She, she's selected to nurse him, and then she's paid to raise her own son. How many of you are like, well, how do I get in on some of that? How can I be paid to raise my own kids? Well, she would pay her own dues as she raises him up, weans him into an age, and then would give him back to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised there in his house. See where his name comes from. And there's a series here of coincidental or seemingly ironic events that the author here, Moses himself, is laying out for us as God is moving events. But note this, irony often indicates God's involvement. Irony indicates God's involvement. Is this mere coincidence or is it divine providence? Is it God moving events for the deliverance of his people? Is it God orchestrating the decisions of a, of a mother? Is, is it God moving people in order to work out his good purposes? See, when you think about your own life and the events of your own life, you can, as you begin to see through providential lenses, as you begin to see the work and activity of God around you, you begin to see things differently. You see the events of your own salvation of God putting the right people in your life, of opening the Bible to, uh, to certain verses, of your mind being opened to the glory of the gospel, and you begin to see that God was at work to save me. It wasn't merely a coincidence. God may have brought you in here this morning. You may have been invited by someone. You may have seen uh, something on Facebook. You may have driven by and saw our sign. That wasn't mere coincidence. It's because God had your number dialed and was drawing you in so you would hear the good news of Jesus Christ this morning. That you would hear of the penalty that was paid on your behalf. That you would see the ugliness of your sin and you would hear the good news of Christ that he died in your place. And that by believing in Christ, you can be saved. And it is no mere accident that you walked through these doors. We begin to see God at work, not only in our salvation, but even in things like how you came to be a part of this church. The friend that invited you, the circumstances that brought you through these doors, it was not a mere accident. You begin to see how God has worked through your times of trials to put the exact right people in your life, to, uh, to uh, put the right doctors in your life, to put the right people in your life for your care, to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. You begin to see how God is moving and working and putting people into your own life, then opening doors for... It is. This is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels. 
But we begin to see how God puts people in our life that we might be his ambassadors, his messengers. You know, if there are people that just keep popping up in your life, you see them at HEB and you see them uh, day after day in the pickup line at school as you keep running into them, these aren't mere coincidences, church. This is God's providence using you to be the person who would point out Christ to them. And as we begin to see the providence of God, this is often more mind-blowing than even the miraculous. As we think of the supernatural ways in which God works in uh, life, of God, you know, uh, defying the laws of uh, natural science and, and moving and, you know, divine healing and things like that. When we see how God is providentially at work, it is more mind-blowing. It provokes more praise to the Lord as we see all the intricacies and the ways that he is orchestrating all the people and events of history. God is up to something. And we ask the question, well, what is he doing now that we can't see? Because as we come to the story here, we get a little glimpse into this one unnamed family and their actions to put their baby in a basket in the water. But it's estimated at that time there were two to three million Israelites there in existence under uh, Egyptian slavery. And I would say that the vast majority of them had probably no idea that, these, that this family existed. They had no idea that this boy was taken into captivity or taken into Pharaoh's household. They had no idea that any of this was going on. All they knew was bitter bondage. All they knew that they had a ruthless taskmaster set over them. All they knew is that they had better make those bricks or else. All they knew is that they were fighting for survival. And little did they know that God was at work, providentially moving events for their deliverance, working behind the scenes in these events, but also preparing the people for deliverance. Because not only does he move events, he is also, here's the, note this, second point, God prepares his people for deliverance. The next section really blitzes through the early years of Moses' life. Did you notice that? It was like the, it was, it was like the hey, here, tell us the 10-second version of your life story, right? Verses 11 to 22. You go in for an interview somewhere, and they're like, hey, tell us, you know, tell us about your life, the things that make you who you are. And I, where do I start? You know? And you kind of hit the high-level things. And so verse 11, it begins, he's grown up, and in verse 22, then he has a kid and everything in between. But the story begins, verse 11 here, as Moses has now grown up, it fast forwards several years and everybody's fighting. You notice that? Everybody, everybody's beating one another up. The Egyptians are fighting Hebrews. Hebrews are fighting uh, Hebrews. Everybody is fighting. And so in the first scene, an Egyptian is beating up a, a Hebrew. And so uh, Moses interjects himself and looks around, makes sure nobody's here. And he strikes down the Egyptian. And then he goes and he buries him in the sand. You think to yourself, like, what in the world is going on here? Like, everybody's just, just fighting each other. And the next day, then the two Hebrews are knocking each other about, and, and, and Moses speaks up here, and he, he interjects himself, and they're like, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us too? What, what are you going to do? And they know it. Everybody's like, why are they, why are they fighting? Well, here's the thing. Note this. Violence prevails where sin prevails. 
Where sin and unrighteousness rule the day from top to bottom, violence will always prevail. Violence is the characteristic of a society that upholds unrighteousness. Where violence and unrighteousness is seen as entertainment. Where it is is even called good and right. Violence will always prevail where sin prevails. We're seeing this in our own day. We see this in in our day where what is good is being considered wrong and what is clearly wrong is being upheld as evil. But the inverse is also true. Justice prevails where righteousness prevails. Justice prevails where righteousness prevails. For know this, justice flows from righteousness. You cannot, have, uh, you cannot have the upholding of what is good and right where the, when, the, when that is not upheld, when righteousness is not upheld. And so church, as believers, as those who know the one true and living God, we, we carry righteousness with us as we live our lives, as we advocate for righteousness, and then justice will prevail. But what we're reading about in Egypt some 3,500 years ago and what we are witnessing today is what happens when unrighteousness prevails in a culture. Violence is everywhere. And so God, God knows this. This isn't new. This is something that has been happening in humanity as a result of the sin that uh, pervades our humanness. God knows this, and so he prepares his people for deliverance. And so there's, there's some foreshadowing happening here. In the same way that there's some irony that points us to God's involvement in his providence, there's also some foreshadowing happening, some things that are being said here that are pointing to uh, not only some future things that would become true of Moses, but also that would foreshadow to some things of Christ. We see it here, look at the the way the men respond, the one in the wrong in verse 14, how he responds to Moses when he says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Which is exactly what would happen decades later, what Moses would become. Which is exactly whom Christ would become. And even the brevity of of Moses' life here, or the details at least that we have in the scriptures of the early days of of Moses' life, point us to the greater Messiah. As we think of Christ's early days and the brevity of details that we have about the early years of Jesus' life in the Gospels, we just have the bulk of the story about his great messianic ministry. And so there's some foreshadowing, some pointing ahead for us. And here's the thing, and when we see this in the scripture, foreshadowing fixes our faith on Christ. We see God at work here. We are confident that God is working something massive. For, for it goes on here because then Moses, he's afraid and at the end of verse 14, and he thinks to himself, surely the thing is known should underline that in your Bible. That's a, that's a marker there. Because he's wondering, he is worried about somebody else knowing what is happening. He's worried that Pharaoh would know it. But where does the chapter end? Who knows what's going on? God does. God knows what is going on. And so while they are enslaved here, God is preparing the man to lead. God is preparing the man to lead. And while his timeline is different, you know, the, the, there's the speed in which the events here, these early days are, 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 are relayed for us. And oftentimes when we want change to happen, we demand it of the Lord. We want it now. 
which God can do, but often he is slower in his work, taking years and years, doing his good, much more massive work. And so don't mistake the speed in which the story is told here for the speed in which God always works. For after this here, um, Moses is afraid and he flees. Pharaoh does indeed know and seeks his life, and so Moses flees. What he uh, thought he had done in secret was indeed known. See, everything we do is known, right? Much to the amazement of our kids, right? Kids who wonder you find out something and you bring it up and they ask like, how did you know that? How did you find out? It was always an amazement to me as a kid. I was, you know, I grew up in a small town and I'd be out riding my bike or out seeing friends all throughout the day and I just had to be home when the streetlights came on at night. Anybody else have that rule? Streetlight rule, just had to be back home. But I would get home and my parents already knew everything that I had done that day. It was mind-blowing to me. They just knew they would see each other around town and would, you know, everybody looked out for each other. But it was known. And in this case, Pharaoh knows it. And so Moses flees to Midian. Do you see that in verse 15? He flees to the land of Midian. And so you should know this here. Midian, uh, likely uh, he fl- fled to the, like, the eastern part of the Sinai Peninsula, if you know your geography here. But more importantly, Midian was another son of Abraham. After his wife Sarah dies in Genesis 24, at the first part of 25, he marries another woman, Keturah, and has more sons, one of which is Midian. And so this is the place, the God-ordained place that God would raise up his leader, and he goes to a well, and there he finds a wife. Well is apparently a place in the, uh, at least in the early parts of the scripture, to find a wife. You need a wife, go to a well. You know, he does here. Isaac finds his wife earlier as Abraham sends his servant. They find Rebecca out of wife. Jacob would find Rachel out of well. And now to Moses here. And Moses then, we read the story, helps these women from uh, the shepherds who are trying to drive them off. And this obtains the favor of the father. And then you continue on reading it. And one moment he's invited to dinner. And then the next moment he's been given a wife. And then the next verse he's been given a son. And you think, well, that was quick, right? That, that uh, progressed pretty rapidly. And you get to it and they have this son. They name him for the journey in which they're on, and you would expect that verse 23 would read, and they lived happily ever after, right? This man escapes the oppression of the Egyptians. He finds a wife. This is great. They have kids, and they lived happily ever after. But that's not what verse 23 says, is it? As a matter of fact, we're like, we're like pulled back to reality, It's like, yeah, this is great. God is doing something over here, but he were pulled back to the bondage in Egypt. It's more like, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch, a new king has been uh, raised up. A new king is in town. The people are groaning and still crying out to help because of their slavery. And so not only in the midst of slavery is God preparing the man to lead, he is also preparing the people for deliverance. And in the midst of their cry for rescue, finally, finally here, we begin to see God's activity. Where once we're just left to see it from the uh, the providence, from the irony and the foreshadowing, now when we get to verse 24, we see these comforts rooted in the character of God about what he is doing. That their prayers, no cry goes unheard because what does it say? God heard their groaning. 
that no, no promise gets forgotten. Why? Because God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These weren't just words spoken to some guys that were forgotten long ago or uh, an agreement written down on some dusty old papers that, are, that have been put in the back of the files. That no action goes unseen. Why? Because God saw the people of Israel. God knew. Underline that in your Bible. God knew. He's not aloof. You know, it's not like God just created the world in six days and then on the seventh day he took a nap and he's been napping ever since and is unaware of anything going on. No, church, you can be sure that not even the flutter of a mosquito wing goes unnoticed by God. Nor is he just merely informed. He's not like some business executive, you know, that receives his daily briefing about the state of the business, but is totally disconnected from the happenings of the business and unconcerned with the people that do it. No, God's involvement and his intimacy with his creation is what makes him the one true and living God. It's this that sets him apart from all other gods. See, the biblical concept of no is attached to a covenant and a relationship in the same way that Adam knew his wife and the way that a spouse knows their spouse, that they are intimately acquainted and moved to action. It's not just an understanding of information. It is the intimate acquaintance of that person, a love for them. So when we say God knows we need an exodus, It's not just that he's aware of the problem and not doing anything about it, but that God is actively at work. God is actively at work. And so we see these things of God's activity and it's a comfort to them. But it is also instructive for us in our day. As we think, maybe maybe you're here this morning like, yeah, I need an exodus. I need to be delivered from my bondage to sin and to Christ Jesus. As you know somebody who's, who's stuck, as you're wondering, well, what do we do in response to the chaos today? What do we do in response to all the turmoil happening in our nation? Well, knowing what we do about the character of God and how he acts, do you need an exodus? Here's what you can do. Cry out to God. You want activity, cry out to God. And here's the thing, church, until we see prayer as activism, sin will prevail on this earth. Until we see prayer as activism, sin will prevail upon the earth. See, prayer and activity are not mutually exclusive. There's not like, well, we'll try one, and if that doesn't work, we'll, we'll come over and we'll try the other. I'll do a bunch of stuff, and if that doesn't affect change, then I'll, I'll be, get to praying. Or I've prayed and prayed, and nothing has happened, so now I'm going to do something. No, 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 no. We are a people of prayer-filled activity. We will not move until we've prayed, and we will not move while we are not praying. We're definitely not going if God is not there as well. Our prayers are form of supernatural activism. So we storm the gates of heaven, asking God to do what only he can do. We must cry out to the Lord. We must cry out to the Lord. And not only this, what else are we to do? Do you need an exodus? Well, then own the promises of God. Like, I've got that, Blair. Yeah, we've talked about that over and over and over and over. And I do not want us to forget it. 
Because see, church, until we see truth as transformative, sin will prevail on the earth. As I said, the promises of God that he made are not just, you know, words on a page that are nice, uh, you know, cliche things that give us, you know, like a little boost when we need a pick-me-up. No, the fact that when it comes back here and says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, it is not suggesting that God had somehow forgotten It is putting before us that this is how God operates. This is how he moves towards us. And when we think of our life, these promises that God, he's promised to give us peace. He's promised to give us wisdom. He's promised to give us soul rest. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. He's promised to give us an escape from sin. He's promised significance and purpose and security in his love. We want change in our world. We want people to be delivered from sin and oppression, from the bondage of their sinfulness. Then let us walk in the promises of God, acknowledging what we lack, acknowledging that we don't know what to do, acknowledging that we can't, and asking God to give it to us. The God who gives generously and without reproach. We accept his answer preemptively as we come to the Lord. We're, it's not that we're coming testing things. It's not that we're coming and saying, well, I'll see, you know, I'm, I'm weighing all my options here and let's see, maybe God, your way might be as good as another way. No, 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 no. We come accepting the answer preemptively, knowing that the way forward, the way that is good and right and true is always found in the Lord and therefore we act in faith. See, church, the truth of the word of God is what changes lives. Go to all sorts of other man-made things. But it is only the truth that is transformative, and until we see it as such, sin will prevail on the earth. But it doesn't end here. We need an exodus. What do we do? How do we act in relation to the character of God? Well, here's the third point here. We live faithfully. We live faithfully, and until we see faithfulness as protest, sin will prevail on the earth. Until we see that our holiness of us daily protesting against our sin and our lives having effect on those around us, sin will prevail on the earth. See, God sees. He knows how we live. His eyes are upon the faithful. His blessing is upon those who are walking in step with his spirit. And our holiness is not solely for our own benefit. So we don't live righteously so that people look at us and be like, oh yeah, he's, he's, he's a pretty holy guy. So we, can be, so we can pat ourselves on the back or be known as holier than thou. No, we live a holy life, one, for God's glory, amen, but two, for the good of those around us. Knowing that our joy is contagious, that our hope breeds confidence in others, that our peace is pervasive upon those around us. In the same way that our sinfulness has an effect on the people around us, so too our holiness. God uses as a means of protest against the prevailing nature of sin in our society. And so church, we must see these things. We must see prayer as activism, as truth, as transformative, as faithfulness, as protest. Otherwise, sin will continue to prevail upon the earth. But God knew the, he knew the plight of the Hebrews. He knew what was happening here. He knows what's happening today. He knows what's happening in your life and in our country. 
And we are not alone. God hasn't abandoned us. He has not stopped up his ears to our prayers, nor has he moved on to some other issue. But we can be confident that God knows and he is up to something so good, so glorious, that even if he told us what he was doing behind the scenes, preparing his people for a deliverance, we likely would not even believe him. Why? Because he is the God of glory. Would you pray with me now? God in heaven, these words are so good for us. These words are so timely. I'm amazed at how you have exactly the right things at exactly the right time for your people. And so we want to be a people who, who live in faithfulness. We want to be a people who, who see you at work. So would you give us a glimpse of that? And God, even if we can't see it, would you help us to trust? Would you help us to believe that, um, that you are at work? That the little ways in which we see you caring for us, you put that person in our life, or you uh, brought that scripture to mind, is you saying, I know. I'm in this with you. I've got this. My word is true. My ways are right. And I'm doing a good work in your midst. And so we trust you in that, God. We look to you in the days ahead without fear, without worry, trusting you now. Your goodness goes with you and you come after us, God. And so we worship you. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.